Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Everybody, it's great to have your company on the show. Of course, made possible by our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Well, today we're joined by a man whose 12-day international cricket career was enough to see his name etched into the history books. Anthony Stewart was a wiry right-arm fast bowler from New South Wales who claimed an ODI hat-trick on the MCG against Pakistan in January 1997. But incredibly, that match was to be his last appearance in green and gold, a three-match career that ended almost as quickly as it began. This is a story that blends appreciation with what-ifs and centres on a man who might have been in the right place, but perhaps at the wrong time. Anthony, welcome. Thanks a lot for your time. Hey, guys. Thanks very much. So that famous day against Wazim Akram's Pakistan, January 16, 1997. Now, just looking, that's a tick. Maths was never my strong suit. A tick over 25 years ago. So a quarter of a century ago last month, in fact. How does this moment, Anthony, live on in your life now? Oh, look, I, I think you know, it, it, it was one of those occasions where, you know, most cricketers and certainly most bowlers, um, you know, have an opportunity to be in a situation like that. And, and you know, you need a lot of things to go your way for it to to come off. Um, you know, there's only so much you can do. And, and as I said, there's plenty of other factors that need to go into it. But um, it, it certainly helped me um, on my, you know, my journey as a, as a in in life and, and working. And, and um, you know, I, I've got a role now where I'm still coaching at a school. Um, you know, I've coached in New Zealand. I've you know coached at New South Wales. I've been in junior level coaching. And 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 yes, I sort of had to follow that sort of career path um, towards the back end of my playing career. But it's it's sort of given me, you know, probably a bit of a leg up, you know, in relation to um, opportunities and and you know so it's 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 not wasn't just a one-off moment for me that you know sort of just ended there it's mm. it's it still helped me and, and it still helps me today you know my, the kids who are old enough now they they understand and you know they get they get mates that you know something will pop up on Instagram or <laughs> you know Cricket Australia you know Facebook page or something like that that you know they'll get messages from their mates and so on of this video that was 25 years ago before they were even born so yeah little things like that there's a bit of a legacy there so it's, it's good fun it's got to be good at the odd dinner party or at the pub as an icebreaker <laughs> surely as the years go on oh I've seen it as a trivia question on TV <laughs> once or twice and yeah. um, you know I, I, I think you know people if, and, I, and I'm quite partial to trivia I've got a reasonable memory so you know I, I think it 
does uh, pop up occasionally and we have a bit of a laugh about it. Where is the hat trick ball? Do you have it somewhere? Yeah, it's at home. It's in one of those little plastic Perspex cubes just to protect it. It was in a plastic bag in my cupboard with the shirt there for a while, but I've, the shirt's still there, but the ball, I've got the ball out. So, yeah, it it's just sort of sits quietly in the corner and occasionally I'll walk past it and have a look at it. It's a cricket ball at the end of the day. So I was going to ask you about the kit, the Carlton United Triangular Series as it was at the time, and this particular <laughs> one was uh, Pakistan and the West Indies. They don't make kits like that anymore. No, they don't. Uh, the, sh- the shirts are quite iconic. I know they've sort of yeah. had surveys over the years of, and rated the, the, the different styles of shirts that they've had, and um, I know that one was quite popular. So I've got a couple of those at home. They're in plastic bags, but they're, they're still in pretty good nick. So at the time, I I think you just turned 27 when when you nailed the hat trick. I, I guess the memory itself. I mean, does it all these years on? Does it come to mind with a layer of fondness, or is it a dose of what could have or should have been to come for you in the national side? Or have you had enough time to reconcile all of that? No, look, I, I don't have any regrets. Um, of course, you know, I would have loved, you know, more things to happen and more opportunities and an Ashes tour and a test match and that sort of thing. And it would have been a great experience. But, you know, to, to have that time and to have that opportunity to represent my country, whether it was one game or a hundred um, whether it was a one day or a test match and um, there were no T20s when I was playing but you know to still you know represent you know 20 odd million people in a team of you know 12 you know not a lot of people get to experience that so there's a lot of ex- a lot of memories I was able to sort of store away in those sort of you know that fortnight I was with the team it was you know it was a big time with player contracts as well like it's sort of you know it's sort of been forgotten about with it you know the way it's all panned out now but that was the time I was I was right in the middle of those discussions with the senior players listening to what they were talking about in team meetings and Tim May and then you had um, the ACB as it was at the time and you know the newspapers were splashing photos of Warney and his yellow Ferrari on, on the front page and you know so you know those those you know the, and the players at the time I think felt like they were they were probably losing the media war the ACB at the time so you know play with you know some of the great players of the last 50 years of Australian cricket in an era that it was the success was unprecedented in it, you know, like you, you, some of the state sides and some of those state games I played in were, you know, they were test match quality, you know, when you think of Victoria, you know, guys like Dean Jones, Brad Hodge, Matthew Elliott, you know, Warney, Damien Fleming, Darren Berry, Paul Rifle, Ian Harvey, you know, Queensland, you, you know, Jimmy Marr, Matthew Hayden, yeah. Martin Love, Ian Healy, Stewie Law, Andy Bickle, Casper, you know, Western Australia, you know, I could I could rattle on, Tassie, you know, so to, to be able to play with and against, you know, some of the best players as I said, and then, you know, experience that level against international teams playing against Brian Lara and the West Indies and, and Wazim. You know, I, I consider myself very fortunate and, and, as I said, have zero regrets of my time. Oh, it's awesome. And I have seen it referenced as a, or referred to as 15 minutes of fame. It's almost insulting. It's better than a TV appearance or getting in the background of a news cross or something like that or a photo in the paper. It's amazing. You know, Bay 13 was going off its nut on the day. The cricket world's watching. I mean, it's a magnificent thing to have in your memory. And if your memory is as sharp as what, you know, yeah. you say it is, it must, it must come to mind with great fondness. So that- yes, it wasn't a, a long time. And yes, the hat trick, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a one-off and it's, 
but it, but I think you know you sort of realise the amount of work you put in behind the scenes to get there to start with, like to to, to get picked for New South Wales initially, um, to then be in a full strength New South Wales team, to then hopefully do well enough to you know possibly get an opportunity to play for Australia, and then you know I I remember when I moved to Sydney I had no car, I I was walking into a new job, I was moving into an apartment with guys I'd never met before, I was catching trains and buses and taxis to grade training and. You know, um, having to pay for my own gym and my own physios, and having to buy my own orthotics, and you know, so there's there's a lot goes in behind mm. the scenes, and that's the same for everyone. That's you know, certainly not just me. So you know, yes, it was fleeting, and yes, I would have loved it. You know, to um, to be a lot longer, but to have the opportunity, you know, you, you need to put in a lot of hard work behind the scenes, and and you know, that's probably you know what I'm most proud of is the the sacrifices, and then the commitments, and and the and the costing of you know money and and money was scarce for me at the time there were no contracts to get there and 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 still have some sort of you know memory i suppose and rewards you know, stored away up here has made it all worthwhile. So let's go back to the journey that got you to the MCG in the first place because you're born a thousand kilometres north in, in Newcastle. I mean, what was <laughs> what was childhood like for you, Anthony? Yeah, uh, youngest of four boys. Um, so I sort of I sort of probably had that, um, you know, the school of hard knocks. You know, you, you're sort of the youngest, so you tend to have to do a lot of the hard leg work and, you know, a bit of bowling to the older brother uh-huh. and, and so on in the backyard. And um, he knocks you over pretty quickly, so you're back bowling again. And... Um, um, you know, I played I played soccer as well. I was probably a better soccer player up until the age of maybe 20, 21. I was playing a higher level of soccer in Newcastle than I was cricket, you know, when I was 18 or 19. I played a lot of indoor cricket as well, I think between sort of the ages of sort of 16 and 23. And and that that really did help me. You know, you had to, certainly in indoor cricket, those as a bowler, those sort of, you know, four or five metre run-ups, you know, that's the explosive part of bowling. And that when you take it outdoors as a bowler you need to accelerate through the crease and so you know your, your reflexes your you know your ability when you're batting to change the angle of your bat to open up the face or close the face and you know you're running between wickets you're calling your decision making everything's you know magnified so I, I I got a lot of time for for you know that that game indoor cricket really really I think helped me become a better player and then Moving to Sydney, I I had a big year, my final year in Newcastle. I was playing great cricket. I actually started the year in second grade as a batter. I had a, I had a bit of a niggle, rig cartilage niggle. So I, I didn't play first grade in the first game. And then I used to work for Newcastle Permanent Building Society and they used to open on a Saturday morning. So then when I got picked in first grade, I missed the first session of play every day and I'd turn up at lunch. So I couldn't open the bowling. What? Um, but I'd come, I'd come on and bowl after that. And I remember where it sort of changed for me the momentum really changed and and you know people's opinions probably started to change it was a game where we were batting so I turned up late um, we got bowled out and we had five overs left at the end of the day so I was able to open the bowling that day because it was late in the day and I had three overs and I took three wickets and I you know it was was at Cardiff over which was probably the fastest wicket in Newcastle at the time and I remember you know pace and bounce and I got three wickets in three overs uh, and that was obviously three for five or six overnight and then I turned up next week and I again I missed the first session so I got there at lunch and they're about five down. We ended up bowling them out. Um, and then I got picked for Newcastle. I got some wickets for Newcastle. I got picked for New South Wales Country. And the Australian Country Championships were, were actually held in Newcastle. Of all of the regional areas in Australia to play, to represent your state, I'm playing in my hometown. So I didn't travel. And I had a good carnival. And I got picked in the Australian Country 11 to play the West Indies Carl Oval at Belmont in early 1993. And it was just after Brian Lara made his debut 
200, which turned into 277 at the SCG. So luckily he didn't play that day. We chased a bit of leather anyway, but I got a couple of wickets and then I had some offers to come to Sydney. Um, you know, there were four or five clubs and I chose to go to Ramwick. So a mate of mine was playing at Ramwick and then I caught up with Mike Whitney and we had dinner and we had a chat, um, lived in the eastern suburbs and yeah, had four years at Ramwick, six years at Waverley or eastern suburbs is now known. So I spent 10 years in the eastern suburbs. So, and here I am in, you know, now 52 years of age and I'm still living in Sydney. So I remember mum, when I first came down in 93, she said, what are you going to do? I said, oh, I'll give it three years and see how I go. <laughs> so here we are 29 years later, I'm still here. So pretty good. You're listening to This Is Your Journey and it's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Next, we might delve into Anthony Stewart's uh, move to the big smoke as he chases his cricket career. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're chatting to former Aussie quick Anthony Stewart. So, Anthony, you're in your early 20s when you do make that move to Sydney and Randwick, summer of 93, 94, I think. But what was cricket for you is something that you, is a passion for you. It's certainly not professional. So what are you doing for a day job at this point? Yeah, having worked at the, the Building Society in Newcastle, um, when I went to Ramwick, the secretary of the club at the time worked for um, National Australia Bank. And then, so I, I had an interview and I had to do some testing and so on at the National Bank. Um, so I was fortunate enough to um, pick up a job there, which obviously helped me pay my rent and my bills and so on, while I was able to sort of live in Sydney and play my grade cricket and get lifts and catch buses and trains and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, so I, I did that for about three years. So I then, then I, Fortunate enough, within 18 months, I was playing for New South Wales. Um, and then I made a, started to make the full strength New South Wales teams. And then it, it, the work got difficult, trying to get time off work. So I was playing you know, Shield games and one day is sort of every every 10 days and trying to get time off. So eventually I sort of made the decision that I moved to Sydney to, to give it a go with cricket. I've got an opportunity and, and I, I was getting paid per game and I was playing pretty much every game at that stage. So it was still just match payments there weren't contracts or anything at that stage so but I, I that was why I moved to Sydney and three years later so I, you know I was very grateful for my time at the National Bank to you know help get me set up and started and give me an opportunity to to you know make a go of it so but so I was there for nearly three years yeah so you make the big move to Sydney you do it without a car which is amazing I mean we were, were you your psyche were you the ambitious type were you was there an ambition burning inside you or was it more you were laid back and just taking it as it comes yeah it was it was more just maybe a bit laid back like I've always been pretty competitive um and and like I didn't I didn't play any representative cricket as a, as a kid, like I grew up in Newcastle and never played any rep cricket. A lot of my mates played the, you know, the, the, the state representative. So, um, 
the, the representative mm. competitions and representing Newcastle playing against areas from Sydney and so on. I didn't make any of that. So I, I just played sport because I, I loved it. You know, as I said, I was competitive and I, I hated losing and I, I still hate losing. Um, but it, it just got to a point where someone said to me later on, you just found a way, every time you moved up a level, you just found a way to fit in. And that, that's as good as I could say. Like I, I, I never, ever felt I was out of my depth. I think probably the only time I, I was nervous was playing initially when I got picked for New South Wales. Um, and a funny story, you know, Neil Maxwell was a player at the time. He was the marketing manager. He rang me to tell me I was playing. Like it wasn't the coach. It wasn't the chairman of selectors. It wasn't anyone from Cretan New Wales, except it was a teammate who happened to be the marketing manager. So, right, right. Um, yeah, Maxie rang me out of the blue. I was working at the bank. So, but that was probably the only time I felt, was I good enough? Um, even when I played for Australia, I felt what I'd been playing and the players I'd been playing against and, and the success I was having in domestic cricket, felt I felt that that was as that level was as good as it could be, um, you know, the, the, the international cricket, the players I was going to play against internationally, outside of your Brian Laras and your Wazzy Macrams and your Wacko Unices and those guys, I don't think the international guys were any better than than the state teams we were playing against. Um, so I felt more, I felt more comfortable and I felt more prepared and. Um, when I was playing for Australia than I than I did initially when I was playing for New South Wales. But yeah, I just sort of had this knack of, because I was so competitive and I just found a way to, to have some success. Didn't matter the level I played, whether it was first grade in Newcastle and it was representing Newcastle and the New South Wales country, then Australian country against the West Indies. And then my first ever game for Ramwick was a trial game against almost a full strength Bankstown. Take out Steve War and Mark War. And, but you had Kevin Roberts, Steve Small, you know, Dean War, Scott Thompson, Wayne Holdsworth, David Friedman, you know, all these guys that had played, you know, first class cricket. That was my first ever game in Sydney. Mm. So, you know, I, I just, I felt competitive and I felt that I just found a way to to improve and fit into that level. And that's that's as simple as I could put it. So you go chips in, of course. You quit the bank. Within a couple of years, your first choice for New South Wales. Now, late 96, I think you'd got a standby call-up for the first test against the Windies. But it was Paul Rifle's injury, was it not, on New Year's Day 1997. In fact, the day before your birthday that saw you called <laughs> up to the Aussie squad for the what would be the back end of the, of the one-day series. But I think it was a few days after that again that Greg Blewett somehow managed to hit Pigeon Glen McGrath in the nets, didn't he? And that was the opening that you needed to face the West Indies at the Gabba. And that was January 5, 97, your debut. Yeah. Yeah. Again, sort of the, I played in the Aussie 11 Ford Air against the West Indies in Hobart in November. And it was freezing cold. And the West Indies had played the game before in Alice Springs. So I'm sure it was a stitch up. Um, and, and, you know, we had a, we had an amazing team, you know, outside of the test side, you know, Matthew Hayden, Matthew Elliott, Stewie Law, uh, Greg Blewett at three, Stewie Law four, Darren Lehman five, Michael Bevan six, Gilly at seven. And then, you know, some of his bowlers down in the lower order. Um, and we gave the West Indies a bit of a touch up and, and then Glenn McGrath, I think it had some issues with his heel. So I, I got some wickets in that game. So I was placed on standby for Glenn for the first test at the Gabba that, that summer. Um, but Glenn got through and and so I sort of went back to playing state cricket. And then, yes, we we were training. New South Wales were training on the 1st of um, January in the at the SCG in the Nets. And the, and the, and the one-day international was actually at the SCG. So, you know, we could hear the, the, the 
crowd noises and so on while we were training out the back. It was about four o'clock and it was a day-nighter. And then someone said, you know, even at training, I think Pistol's broken down. He'd strained a hemi. Um, and, and I never gave it any thought. Like, we were flying to South Australia um, on the next day, which happened to be my birthday, the 2nd of January. So we get to Adelaide and and we literally landed, got to the hotel, got to our rooms, and I was rooming with Michael Slater. And uh, Slats, unfortunately, had just been dropped from the test side and they brought in Matthew Elliott. And, and, and Matthew had that collision with with Mark War at the SCG and did his knee. So that was so Slats was obviously you know probably from a cricket perspective not in a great place. But I was rooming with him and then our tour manager at the time, Dion Bourne. Um, literally, we just dropped our bags off and Dion, Dion came and knocked on the door and he said, "Oh Stewie, you need to go back to Sydney." And I'm thinking, "What have I done? <laughs> like I've only been on the plane. I haven't." I haven't been able to get up to mischief. I've only been here an hour. So, <laughs> so he said, no, no, you've been picked in the squad to replace Paul Rifle in the, you know, in the one day squad. And and I looked around and Slats had got up on the bed and he was jumping up on the bed. He's like, you know, yes, yeah, Stewie. So, you know, so literally we, we caught up. The flight was later in the day. I didn't train though, because the game was in a few days time. I was going to train when I got back to Sydney. Um, but I remember then coming back to the hotel and, and someone had stitched up. It was my birthday and they brought a cake and, you know, candles and whatever. So, yeah, I, I got picked for Australia on the 27th birthday. We're in Adelaide. So, yeah, pretty a, a, a pretty strange coincidence, but it's certainly a pleasant one. So, yeah. So that debut, you end up getting Brian Lara out for 102, <laughs> but you still got, got him 100. out. He got 100. <laughs> but when the kids have grandkids, the story's there, isn't it? Lara, Yeah, court, I, there's court a few Bevan. people I've said that. I've yeah. sort of... Occasionally pull my pocket, and I said, "Yeah, Brian Lara's tucked away in there somewhere." So, yeah, he he did get a hundred, um, and I did drop him out at deep backward square um, when he was on a maybe in his sixties or seventies off Warney. He sort Ouch. of went down a sweatway and got a top edge, and and I'll and I'll say this and, until the day I die that I actually lost it in the light. So it just went at that terrible height that as it came to me in the air, it came fairly flat. And I'd sort of lost it. And then at the last minute, I sort of dived to where I thought it would be and didn't even get a hand on it. Went between the hands. And so, yeah, it doesn't look great. But, yeah, unfortunately, he he played a great innings. And we, we got a big score in those days of, I think, 280-odd. Two, two um, and they ran him down. You know, when he gets going, he's hard to stop. And yeah. We dropped him a couple of times that day, and uh, but eventually got him, but they were too good. You're with This Is Your Journey. It's brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Jump online. You can find them at tobinbrothers.com.au. We'll be back with Anthony Stewart right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. We're with former Australian cricketer Anthony Stewart. So, Anthony, after your debut against the West Indies, you take one for 35 against Pakistan in Hobart. But you and your teammates ended up losing both of those games and it meant that Australia couldn't make the finals. Now, Glenn McGrath had recovered. He was eligible for the final game. It was against Pakistan at the MCG. But given it was going to be a dead rubber, do you think that almost saved your spot on the side? Do you ever play what if? If you were going to make finals, or indeed this match was to determine finals, do you think Pigeon would have come back? And who might have made way? Yeah, I think P- Pistol was still recovering from um, his hammy. So he was back with the squad. 
But Pigeon played, he, he didn't play the game in Brisbane, but he came back and played in Hobart and he played in Perth. I was 12th man in Perth. So I think it was more around whether Pistol would play right. or not. Um, and I bowled pretty well in the two games. Like I, you know, I got one for 35 in Hobart and, and my figures probably didn't do me, do me justice that day. Whereas in Melbourne, that was my day. You know, like it's just, it's the way the game goes sometimes. So I felt I'd bowled pretty well in Hobart, um, but Pistol's hammy probably still wasn't right. So I, I think where I was lucky that day is that for some reason Pigeon didn't open the bowling. So normally it would be Pigeon, new ball, downwind, northern end, you know, MCG, Andy Bickle probably up the hill, southern end into it. But I don't know why it worked out that way that, that Tubby had sort of said to Pidge that he'd bowl first chain. So Andy Bickle got choice of NZ bowl from the northern end and then I got the southern end. And there, there was a, a bit of a nor'easter so I was sort of up into it a little bit which was okay. Like Bick was certainly quicker than me and you know he, he was first choice and I, I had to do a little bit of the legwork but the wicket suited me perfectly. It was just one of those pitches where um, there was just an, a little bit either way off the seam. Um, I wasn't a big swinger of the ball. I, I didn't swing the ball that often. It, it was more, me, was more around control and a little bit with the fingers and a little bit off the deck. So, yeah, I got the opportunity to open the bowling that day and it was my first ever game at the MCG. I remember, you know, I knew which end I was going to bowl from and, and Tubby sort of said, who wants to get into Bay 13? So even though we couldn't make the finals, the ground was still probably about half full. So there's about 50,000 there. Certainly the biggest crowd I'd ever played in front of. And my first ever game in the MCG, and you know those iconic pictures of Merv warming up in the in the 80s and you know, doing his stretches and the crowd you know mimicking him from behind and so I said I'd do it and and a couple of the boys started laughing and I and I sort of had a bit of an idea why I thought there's probably going to be a little bit of banter I get down there and you know great southern stand and and but Bay 12 13 and 14 were full absolutely full full you couldn't move and and a lot of the boys were full as well before they even got there so <laughs> there was a there was a bit of good natured ribbing about me being from New South Wales you know, playing in Melbourne and, you know, some of the Melbourne boys not playing and that sort of thing. So it was all good hearted. And then, yeah, obviously had a bit of success and then got to go and field down there again and, and the mood had changed. And I think the boys were a little bit more full. So that sort of helped as well. So yeah, a great experience. Yeah. There might've been some ribbing about you being a New South Welshman, but they didn't need much of an excuse, Bay 13, to get up and about. So you get Amir Sahail cheaply, Zahur Alai cheaply as well. And then the famous 12th over from the Southern stand in now Egypt. Jazz Ahmed was the first to go for two. And then Muhammad Wazim had repeatedly dug in, hadn't he, in that series. And he got Pakistan out of trouble a few times, but he was yeah. next to go. Oh, and he's gone. So Anthony Stewart is having a blinder here. And he's now on a hat-trick. Now, by this point, Pakistan are four for 29. You have all four wickets in your first game at the MCG. That's incredible enough. And then <laughs> Moen Khan walks out to the middle and you're, you're on a hat-trick. So what's going through your mind here? Was it just, was your head spinning or could you get clarity? No, not not really. I had taken a couple of hat-tricks before. I got one in second grade in Newcastle, you know, as a big 20, 21-year-old. And then I got one in England. So you already got um, two. You already got two hat-tricks by this point. Yeah. Yeah, I got one in England playing a 20-over comp, you know, for the club side I was playing for there. I was experienced enough and calm enough to just say, well, look, you know, just do what you're doing. Try and make him play. Just hit the areas you've been playing. Make sure your rhythm's good um, and, and, you know, bowl an aggressive ball. And, and that's the only time I sort of maybe sort of felt a little bit off put. There's a, actually, there were a couple of times. I remember looking up between the, the second and third wicket to, to my right, which was the eastern side of the MCG. And on the, you know, the big board, it was all black, but it had, you know, white writing on it. Anthony Stewart is on a hat trick. And I sort of went, you know, geez, I'm at the MCG here. And, you know, but it didn't take me long to, you know, just switch back and relax. And then the other time was when I was actually running in. And, and bowlers are 
are very much about rhythm, you know, and I mentioned about acceleration before. And you, you know, you sort of know when you're about halfway in or three quarters of the way in that you're good, your rhythm's good and you, you know you, you know your feet are where they need to be so that you don't bowl a no ball and you, you know, your feet are in the right position to, you know, get yourself in the position you need to to bowl the ball well. You know, you're not overstriding or you're not putting in smaller strides and that sort of thing. So I felt pretty good, but the crowd noise was incredible like even for a half full stadium i can only imagine what it's like you know afl grand final or you know hundred thousand you know any other high level world cup finals that sort of thing so you know people banging on seats and banging on the fence and for, for a fraction of a second the noise got me but what overruled me was my feet my rhythm and I, so I just kept going. Like I literally, it could have gone either way. I could have stopped or I could have kept going. And I've never forgotten it. You know, that sort of sliding doors moment because no doubt if I'd have stopped, I go back to my mark, I probably don't get it. Like yeah. You just don't know. You know, that's, you need that much to go your way to get a wicket. Like the ball lands in the perfect spot. The batter has to do what he, what he does. And that's what happened. It just happened to be that ball. And I very easily could have stopped, but I just because my rhythm was good, I just made the, the split second decision to keep going. He bowls to Moen Khan on a hat-trick. And he's gone. He's got the hat-trick. Three men caught behind the wicket, two of them by Healy, and that one a comfortable waist-high catch to Mark Taylor. So Anthony Stewart has taken a hat-trick. So, yeah, there you go. So five, five, five for 12, I think, off six at one stage, yeah. So Mark Taylor, Tubby brings in the third slip for the occasion too, and the crowd's going off its nut, as you, as you mentioned. And, and it's gone yeah. to the right man because Tubby didn't drop many yeah. at first slip. And uh, then Q Pandemonium stacks on in the middle. One of my vivid memories is sort of being in the huddle and you know, the, the boys have sort of come in, and all of a sudden the huddle has shifted about two metres to the northeast. <laughs> and I looked around and Andy Bickle had hit hit everyone like a scrum. He'd like head down, arms out, and just literally hit about eight of us. Come, he'd come in from mid-off and shifted eight blokes about two metres towards fine leg. But the other one, and I, I was living in New Zealand at the time, and, and the, the Boxing Day test match was on, and I can't remember who Australia were playing at the time, but I remember they used to have a segment during the tea break in the crowd, and, and Mark Nicholas would interview some of the commentary team, and they had Ian Healy and Mark Taylor were sitting in the crowd, and I just happened to have the TV on in New Zealand, the Aussie test, and two hours later over there, and Mark Nicholas started talking about the MCG and talking about my hat-trick, and, and because Ian Healy took the first two catches, and then Mark took the third one, and this conversation between the three of them, and you know, like I've played with Mark, and I, and I know Mark and, and, and Heels, you know, same thing, but to sit there and be you know, 3,000 kilometres away and, and not expecting it and, and hearing, you know, two icons of Australian cricket talking about their experiences of, of my hat-trick on national television um, and, and the banter between them, how Heels was saying, well, you know, I caught the first two and Tubby was saying, well, yeah, you know, I saved you for the third one. You know, I had to go to my left. It was your catch all day. And Heels was like, no, nah, no, it was always your catch and lucky you didn't drop it. And all. So, like, it was, was, it was quite funny that I'm sort of part of this, you know, conversation so far away and, and as I said, of all the memories that those guys have got and the experiences is, you know, that they've had, that, that one of their memories of, you know, the MCG was my, you know, hat-trick back in 1997 and the, and the part that they played in it. So, yeah, quite a strange feeling. So five for 26 you finish with from your 10 overs. The Aussies get the win, the consolation win, three-wicket 
absolute win, and you were, of course, named man of the match. But in the days and weeks after that that followed, what was life like for you? Did life change for a period of time? Yeah, probably for about three or four days was pretty hectic. You know, there was a, a bit of media and, you know, obviously the hotel in the morning and getting back to Sydney Airport that day, you know, had great cricket. Saturday, Sunday, that weekend, and there were, you know, cameras down at the ground, and which were just, the, for me, it was certainly strange. And then, yeah, I, I just back to training, and we had another, our next Shield game was a day-nighter against South Australia. I got a couple of wickets in that game, and, you know, the talk was around the next Test match, and I missed out. So, Andy, it was it probably came down to, to, to Andy Bickle and myself, and Bick had bowled really well in that one-day series, and, you know, fantastic bowler and, and, and a better bowler than, than myself. Tell me when you took the hat trick, you had a car at this point. Because Daniel Cherney wrote a great piece for Code Sports recently where he reported that you ended up giving an exclusive interview to a journalist back at Sydney Airport when you flew back, as long as he gave you a lift home. Yeah, well, I, I didn't I didn't have a car of my own. By that stage, so when I first came to Ramwick, um, there's a guy I work with now called Martin Haywood. So Marty Marty was playing for New South Wales. I was, he was one of my flatmates. So Marty had a car given to him, a second-hand car, a third-hand car, maybe even a fourth-hand car. It wasn't great. Um, by Ramwick for Marty to drive and I was living with him and occasionally he'd give me a lift and you know if he if he wasn't too busy and whatever so by that stage he'd gone to Mossman he'd left Ramwick and gone to Mossman one of the other clubs in Sydney um, so the car was spare and by that stage I was playing for New South Wales full time so yes I had this sort of now fifth hand it was a brown Sigma station wagon it had a little bit of rust in it but it was able to get me from A to B so I did have a car I didn't have it at the airport though so I was only going to get a cab back from the airport and then yeah I was able to get a lift. I saw James Knight at the airport and I've known, I've known Knighty a little bit before and, and even, you know, since and he's a he's a cricket fan anyway and yeah, Knighty was working, I think 10 maybe, Channel 10 at yep. the time. Yeah. And he said, mate, can we have a chat? And I said, well, if you give me a lift home, I'm happy to. So that's how it worked out. <laughs> I think you do that deal any day of the week if you're a journo, no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. no, it was, it was was easy enough for them. And I, I was only living at Randwick, so we were only 15 minutes from the airport. So it wasn't too difficult. I was probably feeling a little bit rough at the time too. So I was certainly not going to be driving, but it was only going to be a cab otherwise. But um, yeah, that's how it worked out, yeah. We're talking to Anthony Stewart on This Is Your Journey, and it's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Next, instead of being at the wheel about to take flight, though, Anthony Stewart's career was soon grounded. We'll be back after this to talk injuries and selection and form shortly. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Anthony Stewart has been our guest today. So, Anthony, as you just touched on, hat-trick at the G, Pfeiffer, your next visit doesn't go as well. It's the day-night shield match against the Vicks, and you tore the ligaments in your ankle. Now, you actually slipped. Did you slip on the edge of a footmark? I mean... Talk about things that you would have done a hundred times before. Uh, I'm yeah. sure there was some some what ifs associated with this. But how did the injury actually happen? 
Shield game, again, so now my second game at the MCG, playing the Vicks. It's a day-night Shield game using an orange ball, running in from the northern end. Just remember sort of planning and then hitting the deck. I sort of fell, and and as I tried to get up, I thought, this doesn't feel very good. Yeah, I got helped off. was able to get scans that night, so they opened up a medical centre near the MCG, and so I got some scans that night. So I knew, I knew pretty much that night what had happened, and I wasn't able to bowl day four, clearly. So, yeah, I'd, I'd torn the ligaments in my left ankle I was on crutches for probably three or four days so it does settle down pretty quickly but you can't do a lot mm. after that like you can walk on it but there's you know no running or anything so I was, I was out pretty much for six to eight weeks which got me to the last shield game potentially to try and get on the 97 ashes tour but I bowled I felt okay I just didn't bowl well enough and and yeah missed selection and you know again they took a very very good side you know led by Glenn but you know Jason Gillespie Paul Rifle I think Andy Bickle might have gone on that tour as well. And they, they won the series over there. But yeah, I, that that was a moment where I was like, oh, geez, that would have been a nice memory, but not to be. So you reset though, and you got a state contract that they were in play now for New South Wales for the following season. But I mean, let us in here because by then there was a new wave coming through, wasn't there? I mean, we're talking Bracken, we're talking Lee, mm. we're talking Stuart Clark. So you already had the comp, the bars already high and now you got yeah. the threat coming from underneath as well. And, and look, I, at times, you know, people think of, you know, you're unfortunate here, but I, I was fortunate to sort of play in an era where it sort of skipped a little bit. You know, you had sort of Wayne Holdsworth was at the back end of his career and Wayne was a fantastic bowler for New South Wales. You Mike Whitney's, you Jeff Lawson's, you know, those guys. I'd sort of just missed that era and then came through in between, you know, and then obviously following you had Brett Lee, Stuart Clark, Nathan Bracken, Matt Nicholson had to go to Perth. Simon Cook came up from Victoria and, and played a couple of tests that year. So I, you know, I, I consider myself fortunate that I played as much as I did at that particular time because I think, you know, if I'd have been earlier or I'd have been later, I may not have played or I I'm certainly probably would have played a lot less. 98 season and, you know, these young guys were coming through and, you know, they're all, apart from Brett, Brett wasn't as tall as me, but the rest of these guys are all six foot four, six foot five. And if you have a look at them now, they're all, you know, Starkey and Josh Hazelwood and they're, you know, apart from Joy Richardson and Michael Nessa, they're all six foot five and six now. So I was sort of that six foot two, six, two and a half. Yeah, you know, I, I obviously I started that season and I, I got I got a seven for against Western Australia at the SCG and that was Brett Lee's debut finish at Wales and we, we were 260 behind on the first innings and won the game so it was an incredible game of cricket probably the best game of cricket I've ever played in and Brett took the last wicket in his debut with I think seven balls to spare to win the Shield game after being all out for 130 they got Western Australia got 370 after being two for 300 and um, you know we won the game so but you know yeah I, those boys coming through a lot more competition and I probably didn't bowl as well that year just for what whatever reason I, I, I can't put my finger on it but it just didn't happen so you know it, it's game is ruthless and you know they, they were bowling better and Brett, Brett was certainly quicker than I was and Nathan left arm swing bowler and Nico you know Matt Nicholson tall six foot six good pace quicker than I was so like yeah it just sort of got to that stage where there were more boys ready to play and I mm. wasn't playing well enough so yeah that's that's professional sport it is sadly and it moves pretty quick doesn't it I, I mean you tried your hand at coaching first uh, for first class New Zealand side Wellington over over there, as you mentioned, you were living there for a time. That was for, for the better part of five years. And then you went back to your home state of New South Wales. Now, that didn't last as long, 18 months, before you were sacked in late 2012. I mean, how do you look back on this part of your life, Anthony, and what was no doubt a pretty difficult time for you, I'd imagine? Yeah, it was difficult. The New Zealand experience was was great. 
I learned a lot about the game while I was there and I made some uh, lifelong friendships with some of the guys over there that you know I still keep in touch with. The New South Wales experience was difficult and and look I, at the end of the day, I had an opportunity and I didn't do well enough. And, and and that's the reality. Would I, if I had an extra 10 years where I'm at now, I'd, I'd be better at it. There were the areas I probably let myself down, probably my communication or maybe lack of communication. Uh, it probably needed to be better with, you know, certainly a lot of the senior players, you know, that sort of relationship building. And, and, and I think, you know, it, it was just, that's the only way I can realistically put it is it was my opportunity and it and I didn't do well enough. Were there extenuating factors? Well, there, there, there is in every job and I probably needed to manage that better than I did and, and that's why I look back and think it didn't work. Was it a tough period? Absolutely. In hindsight, probably wasn't ready for the role like I thought I was, but I, I wasn't good enough and it was, was probably the toughest mentally and emotionally 18 months of my life um, and I, I learned a lot about myself and I learn a lot about others about agendas and 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 politics you know from from all levels so it, it, it was a real learning experience for me and and not something I particularly enjoyed the the, the 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 negative times probably outweighed the positive times which is a shame because I'm a very passionate New South Welshman I, I, you know I love my state I love my hometown I love living in Sydney and I loved playing for New South Wales like it's an incredible experience and but that part of my life was probably the toughest and I've lost my father as a kid. I've lost two brothers, you know, years ago. But that 18 months was probably the worst 18 months of my life. And that process and how it actually did play out. I mean, did you fall out of love with the game, with the sport? And, and did it take you a while to recapture that? I, I, I can't say I ever lost passion for the sport. Like, I, I love cricket. And I, and I loved cricket even at that stage. Maybe not that level of cricket. Maybe not that high level of cricket and, and knowing, you know, what goes on behind the scenes. But, but certainly club cricket and junior kids cricket you know the, the game itself I've always loved it um, and that that was certainly the same that never changed so did I need to do something about myself absolutely I, I needed to get away from the game for a while absolutely I, you know I spent more time with my family um, I was still helping you know my son's cricket team coaching wise he had a coach but I'd sort of sit beside him and you know have a bit of fun and do some umpiring and that sort of thing so I was never I was never lost from the game and I never lost enthusiasm or passion for the game but it was more about people you know I, I lost a lot of trust in people and, and saw behaviours that I, I haven't forgotten you know and, 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 and people that were in your life when you had the job to not being in your life when you didn't have the job and, and I, you know, I do have a very long memory, as you've heard today. You know, I've, I've got a ridiculous memory for 50 years ago. You know, maybe not quite, maybe 45 years ago. Things I remember as a kid, and I haven't forgotten, and I'll, and I'll never forget, and I, and I won't forgive. I'm, I'm unfortunately, I'm that sort of person where it, it is hard for me to forget and sometimes move on. You know, I've had, I've had a couple of players reach out to me over the years around that time and and, and apologise for you know for whatever reason and I don't, I don't think they had to but they felt they had to about how it went down um, which I respect and I and I absolutely consider those guys to be you know people in my life and if they ever need help I'm happy to you know be a part of that but yeah there there are there are a few bridges burnt which is okay I'm I'm okay with that I, you know I've got plenty of friends and 
my family and you know support in my life that I you know I, I treasure and and but yeah I just there were you know having that role and seeing people come in and then not having it and seeing seeing them you know move on there, there, there was a lot of lessons learned in that 18 months that I'll that I'll take with me for the rest of my life which is good and you're at Knox you're Knox Grammar now obviously so enjoying uh, enjoying life there I know you took a job with the AFL for a time as well yeah. but Knox Grammar so this is just pure enjoyment I imagine I, I love it this is the best job I've ever had I actually worked for Kingsgrove Sports as well for a period of time in retail and I really really enjoyed that job as well the AFL job was great you know a, a different sport and different people and a different organisation and um, you know again I, I, I still stay in touch with um, my boss in that role and you know I learned a lot at the AFL around coaching and 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 you know being a coach and watching how other people did it and then ex-players coming in and being part of the level three AFL watching that and being part of that listening you know so I, I've got some really really good memories and, and and roles and and relationships I've sort of built up over the last sort of seven or eight years but yeah this job at Knox you know, people say if you enjoy what you do, then it's not a job, and that's sort of how I feel about this. I've mm. got you know, a great bunch of kids, boys coming through. You know, they love their cricket. You know, they're they're, they're learning, and they're, my job is to you know foster that passion that they've already got, and you know, get them into grade cricket. And then once I get them into a high level of grade cricket, then you know, it's up to them. And that's sort of where we're heading at the moment. So really, really exciting. I've been there four years, and I, I love every day of it. Anthony, thanks so much for your time today. I mean, unlike the fish that gets bigger every time the story's told. I mean, your story can't be exaggerated. So if you're only going to play three games for Australia, your three <laughs> look very good on the resume, it must be said, and you'll always have that day where you were the king of the G. So well done on what you did when you were given the chance. Thanks a lot for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey, and it's all for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Jump online to find tobinbrothers.com.au. We'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91